Man, that's real sweet, man. I was like, don't say a lot, please. Because that, that, you know, that sets expectations. You always want to set really low expectations. So, so that way, if I just can stand up here and be somewhat coherent, it's like, yes, you know? So I will do my very best and, and plead upon the grace of God to give me clarity of thought, uh, kindness in my words, but truthfulness in my words as well. So, so uh, but thank you, thank you. When I was asked uh, if I would take this particular role, and to be honest with you, Michelle knows I will do anything to be able to come to LDR, like anything, like any task. Um, and this was before 2017, when I was asked if I would do this. And 2017 has been a doozy of a year. And if I could go back in time, I would probably have said, nah, no thank you. No thank you. But you know, Jesus has a sense of humor, right? And sometimes you get asked questions and you commit to things before you know what the future holds. So here I am today. And I've got a great deal of trepidation today because I literally am standing before all kinds of people, seminarians, pastors, scholars, leaders in different traditions from all around the country. And uh, I'm not a seminarian. That's not my background. I play one on the podcast, but I'm, <laughs> I'm the non-seminarian on the podcast. I'm like the biblicist on there. I'm like, but the Bible says, you know? And so that, that is the street that I live on. So you could, you'll probably hear a bit of that at some point in our conversation today. Um, I want you to think for a moment about a time you told a big old fat lie as a kid. I mean, a good one. Big old fat juicy lie as a kid. And I mean a whopper, you know, uh, things like lying about who broke that vase, you know, putting it on your younger brother or younger sister, you know. I was the younger sister. Uh, I've got one from my family history, and I just recently came clean and repented of this lie. I'm not gonna lie to you, I'm serious. My mama could be watching this right now, y'all. Um, I call it the Polaroid story. So I was a latchkey kid. I don't know if you guys remember that language from back in the day. Those are the kids whose parents work later into the evening, so you got a key. And you go straight home and you get into the house and that's what I would do. And so uh, this particular day after school, I came home with one of my best friends, Kylie Jordan. You know how you remember your best friend's whole names and you say them the whole name when you're talking as an adult, even now, like it's not weird. Hey, Kylie. And uh, we were at my house hanging out, at my apartment hanging out, and I looked up and we saw on the top of my mother's china cabinet a Polaroid camera. And this is long before the days of cameras and phones, right? And so a camera was like platinum. It was amazing. And we looked and we asked no questions. We didn't ask how the camera got there. We certainly knew that it wasn't our camera. Didn't want to think that far. So we climb on top of a chair, get on the top of that china cabinet, get that Polaroid camera down and look inside. And behold, it has 10 pictures left in it. OMG, y'all. I mean, Polaroid pictures, like you take it and it comes right out. C could there be anything more exciting? Super exciting, y'all. And so, and so listen, so, so we get the camera. Remember, we ask no questions. Obviously, we know it's not our camera. We know that we didn't put the film in it. It probably belongs to a real person, but we didn't ask any questions. And we look at each other and we go, great idea. Let's run around the apartment complex and let's just take pictures. Seems innocent, doesn't it? And that's what we did. We ran around, we took pictures of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm dancing like I'm in kid and play. We got pictures of that, real time. <laughs> pictures in the trees, smile. I mean, it was great. These are like the 10 best photos ever. Well, flash forward about a week later. It is my sister's junior prom night. Y'all know how this story is going to end. <laughs> you know how the story is going to end, okay? And so my mother, who I love, I love mama, wherever you are, if you're watching, my mother, uh, and I, I tell people this and it, it surprises them, has never really raised her voice at me. She's one of those still, soothing voice people, which is very scary, actually. And um, <laughs> to be honest with you. And so my mother goes, and my sister is all symmetrical for this prom. This is back in the day, right? So she's got, she's got symmetrical hair. She's got a symmetrical dress, symmetrical slit. 
And my dad is working late this, this, this particular evening, and so he's not going to be there to witness his oldest daughter go to the prom. And so my mother, being the loving, kind, perfect wife that she is, uh, is like, I've got these Polaroid pictures. I'm going to show this to Mike when he comes home. He'll get to see his oldest daughter's pictures first thing. Beautiful idea. Well, she goes and she gets the camera. She brings it down, and she looks at it. And what does it say, you know, the little box? This is zero. It says zero. And I'm dreading this moment because I'm putting the pieces together. I'm realizing obviously that camera belonged to someone. Someone did put the film in that camera. And it was for a purpose. And I've used it. And I'm thinking about where have I hidden those pictures in this house. And so my mother looks at it and she calmly goes, huh, what's wrong with this camera? What's wrong with it? And I get quieter and quieter and quieter to the point where I can hear my heartbeat. And she looks at me, remembering that still voice, and she says, um, Christina, do you know what happened to my camera? <laughs> and I'm telling you, Broadway, Oscar-winning performance <laughs> style. I looked my mama in her face, and I said, no, mom. <laughs> oh. I don't know. And you know how when you lie, you gotta you ride that out. You ride out that lie. And y'all, I rolled that lie out for like 27 years. <laughs> A long time. A long time. So I don't think I'm alone, y'all. If you've lied to your mom or your dad, it's not too late. Call them up and let them know. They might find it funny, like she found this story funny. But but here's the but here's the thing. Here's the thing. There's a lot of lying going on. There's a lot of lying going on. And, and all we have to do is kind of flip through the Rolodex of history, not even the Rolodex of our heart, and we can see a lot of lying going on. Uh, here, here's an interesting example from American history. On the morning of June 17, 1972, five men were arrested after breaking into the Democratic National Com Committee headquarters in the Watergate building in Washington, D.C. The media, led by Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, doggedly pursued this story, exposing wiretaps, secret documents, and hush money. President Nixon denied involvement in the scandal, famously declaring on TV, say it with me, you remember, right? That, that was my version of, Mom, I have no idea what happened with your camera. No, no idea, right? Yeah, Nixon eventually resigned his second term in August 9th, 1974. And not to simply pick on our late president, Richard Nixon, we can turn the pages of time even till today, this very day, this very moment, and we can observe the very real temptations that familial, local, national, and global leadership positions bring. Lots of temptations to lie. Leaders are easily tempted to active, willful lying and self-deception as they seek political power and they fight to maintain it. In other words, we lie to broker and to maintain illegitimate power. You know, we also lie, and I've got a few reasons here why we lie, uh, we also lie, it seems anyway, to collect money. We lie to get paid, don't we? We lie to keep a job. Any White Sox fans out there today? Yeah. I'll try not to shame you too much. So, so in the early 1900s, there was, of course, the White Sox cheating scandal, right? where they threw the World Series. Talk about some moxie. Come on, y'all. And for as much as $100,000, which would be the equivalent of $1.4 today, they decided to deliberately lose the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Reds. Eddie Siakati testified before a grand jury saying, I must have been crazy. He and seven other players, including Shoeless Joe Jackson, I just like that name, Shoeless Joe Jackson, so I decided to include that in my notes. Uh, they were indicted on nine counts of conspiracy, but acquitted by a jury. 
they were, of course, banned from the game for life. We lie, we lie for money. We also lie so that we can be more than what we are. You know? Joan Lowell uh, famously fabricated her best-selling 1929 memoir. To paraphrase her, the memoir was called The Cradle of the Deep, but to paraphrase Joan, she says, any darn fool can be accurate and bland. So you can be accurate, but you'll be boring. You and I, oh, how tempted we are to lie to be more than what we are. We also lie because we seek the praise of others. P.T. Barnum, does that name sound familiar to you? In the mid eight, early kind of 1800s, uh, he was a showman. And one of his interesting uh, spectacles was uh, that he would sh show a woman who he claimed was the nursemaid to President George Washington. Yes, that's right. Um, he would tell people that she was 161 years old. And he loved to lie so much, and he loved to embellish, and he had such a flair for fake news, right, that even before he died, when he was very ill, he requested to see a copy of his obituary because he made, wanted to make sure he had all the bells and the whistles before he passed away. We lie because we seek the praise of others. But here's another one. We lie to justify ourselves, to justify our sin, and to even justify sinful systems. Right? So I got the privilege of studying psychology, and uh, one, of the, one of my favorite things to do was to go all the way in the back of the DSM book, <laughs> the diagnostic manual, shout out. And at the very, very back of the book, they have these uh, kind of antiquated uh, psychological disorders, things that we are too, you know, refined to think of disorders now, right? So that's all the way in the back of the book. And, and, and one of the kind of most famous ones that we discuss in psychology, but also in folks who do anti-racism work, is uh, drapetomania. By show of hands, anyone familiar with that? Ah, well, you'll enjoy this. Well, kind of, sort of, you will. <laughs> kind of, sort of, you will, in a traumatizing-like way. Um, and, uh, <laughs> In the, in the mid-1800s, a Louisiana physician, eager to justify the practices of slavery and a race-based caste system, developed a pseudoscience condition called drapetomania. Dr. Samuel A. Cartwright published a paper entitled The Report on the Diseases and Physical Peculiarities of the Negro Race. The paper appeared in the New Orleans Medical and Surgical Journal a reputable scholarly journal at the time. In his paper, he purports the discovery of two new illnesses specific to Negroes. Mm -hmm. And of course, the treatment for these conditions were subjugation, reminding people of their, God-ordained of course, social status. He believed this condition justified enslavement as a therapeutic necessity. It's the right thing to do. Of course, we can't let these people be on their own, right? He claimed that blacks who fled slavery suffered from drapetomania. And here are his words. A runaway slave is mania mad or crazy. Mania mad or crazy. For Cartwright and other pro-slavery defenders, any black slave who tried to escape must be crazy. The uncontrollable urge, the quote, uncontrollable urge to run away was a symptom of a mental disorder. And later, Cartwright would argue that drapetomania could be prevented by, quote, beating the devil out of them, and even amputation of toes, if necessary. Cartwright also described another mental disorder. Mm -hmm. 
and this is a big word, guys, so I'm going to abbreviate it in a moment. Diesthesia athiopecia. We're just going to call that DA for the rest of this conversation, okay? And it was used to explain the apparent lack of work ethic exhibited by many slaves. The diagnosable symptoms included disobedience and insolence and refusing to work as well as physical lesions. And what treatment did Cartwright suggest? Quote, put the patient to some hard kind of work in the open air and sunshine under the watchful eye, of course, of a white man. So what's my opinion of drapedomania and DA? Maybe not very different than the one that you have right now after hearing me describe them, right? They're examples of what we call scientific racism. Racist propaganda masquerading as objective scientific inquiry. The desire for freedom and even equity is not pathology. And let me even, let, and let me add this, the desire for freedom and equity is also not immoral. So Cartwright was unfortunately not the only scholar to use this science, right? This pseudoscience. Dr. Benjamin Rush, the father of American psychiatry, declared that dark skin was caused by a rare congenital disease called nigritude, which derived from leprosy, ironically, right? Go figure. And of course, you know what the cure for this is, to do our very best to turn that skin white. Do you know the name of the document that Dr. Benjamin Rush also signed? The Declaration of Independence. Well, there you go. But here's the kicker, because that's 17 and 1800, so no big deal, right? Because sin kind of just shakes off. <laughs> like the Bible never said that. And if we just wait a while, our sin gets better. No. And so what does that mean for us today? that the conceptual children of drapedomania and DA still permeate our culture. And I imagine that if for a moment, and I'll give you 20 seconds to do it, if you think for a moment about drapedomania and DA, you can find yourself thinking of the 2017 tropes about the dysfunctionality of blackness that descend from this very rhetoric. Could you? Could you? Could you? Well, black people need to know how to work harder. You know, the work ethic. It's a work ethic issue. Work ethic. Work ethic. Right? That'll fix it. Right? If you can just kind of assimilate a bit more, just stop being so, you know, being so black. Right? So, it lingers, guys. It lingers. But check it out. How did, how did it end up, how did it end up lingering, right? lingering? Because we all have lies. I got my Polaroid lie, right? But that didn't get all into the systems. You know, we don't have a, a, a systemic Polaroid line issue right now, do we? I don't think. They're gone. We can't use our phones now. How did it get into the system? In other words, our individual lies combined with our social power, our social positioning, right? Those things work together to become systemic lies that shape cultural values, worldviews, and structures. Yeah. In other words, <laughs> our individual lies, right? Combined with social power, and we all have different degrees and measures of that, right? They work together to become systemic lies that shape cultural values, worldviews, and structures. So I guess there's no such thing as a little white lie. Because if you combine it with power, it shapes the reality for my children. So I tend to have strong feelings about those. And for the children's all, children all around this globe who deserve good opportunities, and they're not crazy because they want equity. 
So do this for me. We have a moment of mindfulness, okay? Do this for me. I want you to think quietly for a moment. You can close your eyes. I won't take your money. Um, <laughs> someone else next to you might, though. Uh, for a moment, and I want you to think about some of the lies that you tell yourself. Some of the lies that you tell your neighbor and the lies that you tell about your neighbor. The lies that you tell about your neighbor and your enemy. And finally, I want you to think to yourself about the lies that you tell about the father and giver of truth, God. So a lie is a falsehood used to deceive self and others, right? And remember, it seems, it appears that we lie for some different reasons. It seems that we lie uh, to broker illegitimate power, to collect or keep money to get paid, uh, to be more than what we are, to obtain the praise of others. And we're constantly lying in order to satiate, to mitigate the cognitive dissonance that we have about what we really are and what we claim to be, right? To make sense out of the world. It helps us to fill in the gaps. But ultimately here, we lie to justify ourselves and our sin and to be really, really real with you. We lie because we are liars. Just like we sin because we are sinners. This is not a function of our doing, but of our being. And I know that's weird, particularly in our Western social context, right? We are a doing culture. And so often we're fixated on what we do makes us who we are, but no, who we just are. That's actually the issue. That's what needs saving grace. But don't take my word for it. Maybe, just maybe, as I operate in the general office of believer, prophet, priest, and king, we can go to the word of God together. So Mark 10, chapter 10, verse 17, reads as follows. I think that the rich young ruler and Jesus, there's something in that story maybe for us today. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do right, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Hmm. I don't know what happened with that camera. <laughs> and Jesus looking at him. It's one of my favorite parts of scripture is when it talks about Jesus looking at people, Jesus being able to see people, Jesus choosing to see us and to look at us. Even when we won't look at ourselves, but I, I'm gonna stop right there, but I, I'm so delighted that God will look at me even when I won't look at myself. But Jesus chooses to look at this man. And it says, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come. Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said that, not Mark's. Jesus said that. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. I think we can relate. And said to him, oh, then who can be saved? In my mind, I almost feel the despair of that. The coming to the end of one selfness, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Isn't that a great text? I mean, if you like the Bible, you're supposed to say that you love all the texts. But, but some at particular moments are like, yes, jazz hands. It's a great text, right? <laughs> and that is indeed one of those for me. At the very beginning of that passage and that, and that conversation, that exchange between what many come to, to, to call the rich young ruler or the rich ruler in Jesus, we see this conversation about semantics, about one single word, and what's that word? Good. Good. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus says no one is good except God alone. And he is confronting this man with the reality of the thrice holy God who holds absolute moral purity. He's telling the man God is good and you're not. Right? In some ways, I look at this text and I think to myself, that was like neon lights moment number one for the rich young ruler. That was a clear moment to redirect or reorient oneself to say, oh, you are good. Like, like in Isaiah good, like you are holy. Can I even stand before you? Can I even have this conversation? But that's not what happens next, right? Instead of what happens next, which is so contrasting, right? Jesus' acknowledgement of the goodness of God. And then we have this young ruler who then goes forward and talks about his ability to keep the law since his youth. It shows his self-deception, but it also shows a fixation that both you and I have. It's the fixation to justify ourselves by law-keeping. Our obsession with checking boxes. And we like to check boxes so much that we go beyond even the Ten Commandments. We have found ways to make up new laws. You know, as if not being able to satisfy the ones that already are written aren't enough for us. We have created more laws and more fencing of the law and, and more and more ways to break the law by creating more law. 
Oh, but we like to check those boxes, don't we? All are born shaped in sin and inequity. And so when the rich young ruler says, well, since my youth, since kind of the age of accountability, I've been keeping all this law, he forgets one thing. So you were born. This is not an issue of your doing, it's an issue of your being. Remember, you lie because you're a liar, you sin because you're a sinner. This is how you were born. Which means checking those boxes, which we don't do well anyway, isn't impressive to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our status as sinners in need of grace isn't simply a product of our actions or inactions, but of our very identity. You sin because you're a sinner, and we are born needing to be born again. No different for the rich young ruler, right? And the truth fills us, this truth, this big T truth, fills us with frustration, embarrassment, and anger. It slaps our current cultural context in the face. And behaviorists might say something like, well, you are what you do. And Descartes would always declare that we think, therefore, we, we are, right? But the truth is, our very core, our very root needs to be made anew. And here is why we find ourselves denying deny even the most obvious sins. So obvious that even those outside of the family of God, those who we say are lost, can see them in technicolor. Isn't it, oh, a sad thing, a sad thing, when those without spiritual vision can still see our sins? There's something about denying your sin that makes it even brighter, that makes it even bolder. It's like, I'm not wearing polka dots. I, I, I'm not wearing polka dots. I am not wearing polka dots today. No, I'm not wearing polka dots today. Girl, you got on polka dots. And what might this sound like in the American church today? I am not a racist. I am not a racist. I am not a chauvinist. I don't struggle with that. That's not who I am. Well, you don't struggle with that. I struggle with everything. How did that happen? How did that happen? What's the potion? What's the formula? How were you able not to struggle with that? How did that happen? Well, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with all kinds of things. The fact that you and I are born prone to self-deception serves as a great equalizer. We, the members of the human race, share two great connectors. Together we bear the image of God, and together we all desperately need the Son of God. But this passage also reveals what the rich young ruler cherishes. If you look close enough, it could reveal what you cherish. So to follow Jesus means to deny oneself, to take up one's cross, in imitation of Jesus' own self-sacrificial service. It means to lose one's life in order to save it. It means that our very identity at times is now up for exchange, up for modification, up for surrender, up for reassignment. Our very identity is now before the Lord God Almighty, the great creator, who now gets to tell us who we are. But I want you to notice something real quick. I want you to notice the part of the law that Jesus articulated to the rich young ruler. 
Did you notice? Did you notice? Did you notice that they were things like, huh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor father and mother. These are the neighbor to neighbor, human to human, orthopraxis elements of the law. You know. Jesus seems to be emphasizing the part of the law that has to do with how you treat your neighbor. The part of the law that has to do with how you treat your enemy, how you treat your family. Clearly, Jesus is God. Jesus could have said, let's think about, do you, have you taken my name in vain? <laughs> but Jesus doesn't. Jesus pushes the rich young ruler to consider how you have treated your neighbor. And I find this particularly fascinating because the rich young ruler represents a social elite. He is socially privileged. And for those of us who live within the space of social privilege, no matter what it may be, this is a great temptation for us. And so he walks right down the rich young ruler's street. Hmm. Hmm. So what have we seen so far? While on the way to Jerusalem, a man approaches Jesus and asks how he can inherit eternal life. He's a guy that likes to check boxes, so he wants to know what he can do. That's kind of like us. The man comes kneeling before Jesus. That looks pretty gracious and humble, but yet he quickly shows there's not a whole lot of humility. That looks a lot like us. Um, well, a lot like me, and, um, and the rich young ruler boldly proclaims that he's kept all those commandments. But here's the part of this text that I find most fascinating, and here's why I offer this to us almost as Jesus' didactic training. So what do you do when someone says, I don't have that sin, I don't struggle with those issues, I've kept all that since my youth. Don't have a prejudice bone in my body, end quote. Um, I do. So this is what he does. He deepens. He escalates. And he expands the law. See, this is why you should admit the small things fast. <laughs> like, quick. Like, yep, 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 I'm a sinner. Yep, 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 yep. Because he doesn't do that. And so what happens? Jesus says, come a little closer. And see, when we pretend that we have met the law in our own strength, we lie to ourselves, we lie to our neighbor, we lie to our foe, and we lie to God. And then that law is graciously escalated. Not literally, it already is deep, deeper than we can understand, deeper than we can comprehend, deeper than we're able to fulfill, which is why Christ himself fulfills it on our behalf. So for the rich young ruler who has denied and lied about his inability to fulfill the law, Jesus escalates it on him. So the requirement that he has, the very thing that he identifies as, his very being, his very social privilege, that's the thing that Jesus says, give that up. So remember your rich ruler? Well, sell everything you have. You're no longer rich. Remember you're a rich ruler? So follow me. I'm ruling you. You will follow me. To follow the law, though, to follow it as scripture commands us, is actually to follow the lawgiver and the law keeper. Oh, don't you want to follow Jesus? Because Lord knows I can't check these boxes. I want to follow Jesus. And as we walk with him, as we follow him, we follow the law 
through him. But know this, when we deny our sins, personal, social, or systemic, the law is not eliminated. It's escalated. And when we say, I've loved my neighbor as myself, man, that's a lot of moxie. While the evidence of bigotry and racism and misogyny can even be seen by those without spiritual sight, then we've escalated the law. Jesus graciously, graciously does this to break our pride. Oh, so you're not a racist? Okay. We'll give all your money to reparations. But I got another one. I got another one for the folks who clapped. So, so you don't struggle with unforgiveness, right? Okay. So, so cancel all the moral debt. Cancel all the financial debt. Cancel all the psychological debt. So Jesus showed the real depths and the purity of the law to the rich young ruler. And he did this, y'all. He did this, y'all, because he looked at him, he saw him, and he loved him. Talk about speaking the truth in love. Love fuels, directs, and informs our evangelistic and discipleship truths. Love does that. Love causes us to tell the brother or sister that's not fulfilling the law, the depths and the reach and the broadness of the moral law so that they can come to the end of themselves and join us in covenant community as we declare in one voice that Jesus has paid it all. You know, with this perspective, we're left unable to brag. We're unable to boast in our law-keeping checklist ways, making up new laws ways. We're left to not boast in our intellectual pedigree, which really means nothing before the God of all wisdom and wonder. We can't boast in our theological traditions, which I got to tell you, I cannot wait to get to glory when I see the look of shock on people's faces, like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Because they believe that Jesus paid it all. And of course, we won't be able to boast in our social or cultural statuses, sometimes hiding behind the pockets of things that we refer to as our clearly culturally saturated biblical world views. We boast only in Christ, the one that I need as much as you. In John 13, 34, here's the word of the Lord. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. We don't just love each other. We love each other the way that Jesus has loved us. There's a, there's a caveat on that. It's not just like, just love your neighbor. No, it's love them the way that Jesus has loved us. Man, that's a heavy burden. Once again, another, another box that I can't check. It's another box that I cannot check. But I do know one thing, that this whole thing is about love. And not just love in a Hallmark card, wimpy kind of way, but love in a Christ-centered way, love in a sacrificial way, as Jesus loves us. And how has Jesus loved us? 
through putting down his rightful status, through sacrifice, through claiming us as his own, us who don't deserve that, through never treating us as the jealous older brother in the prodigal son, but rather guiding us to a day where we shall be co-heirs with Christ. Disciples are to love neighbors with the same self-sacrificial service as Jesus does. And that demands personal engagement and self-denial, not self-deception. So think about Jesus' act of love. He looks with love. And the rich young ruler was shocked by this. And he went away grieving. And scripture tells us it's because he had great possessions. The man walks away from Jesus unable to embrace eternal life, choosing to keep the world, his status, and appears to forfeit his soul. Choosing to maintain his lie instead of walking with the truth, with the way, the truth, and the life. Unless we hear these words and we become grieved ourselves, we get lost in our own despair about our box-checking ways, Jesus reminds us that there is indeed hope for liars. There is indeed grace for self-deluders. There is grace for liars. When the rich man leaves, Jesus teaches that wealth has a way of distracting us. Our status has a way of distracting us. Our social labels and our social privileges, they have a way of distracting us, tricking us into leaning into that instead of leaning on Jesus Christ alone. But Jesus tells us something to even his disciples as he teaches them towards the end of this passage. As they come to the end of themselves, having witnessed what they've seen, and they ask, well, who? Who, who, who can be saved? Who, who can be saved? Hmm. And with human things, this is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. So how do liars get saved? Certainly not apart from the grace and the work of God. How do self-deluders get saved? Oh, by the grace of God. And it is by the grace of God alone and not any checks, marks, and boxes that does it. It is the power of God to the credit of the Spirit's work that we are claimed and kept for eternal life, that liars can see the truth, that God alone is good, and that we haven't kept the law, and that we're broken for birth, but there still is grace for liars. And Jesus, check this out as I wrap up, Jesus himself fulfills these things in so many ways. He fulfills them in ways that rich young ruler has failed. He's born sinless. He studies, explicates, and keeps the fullness of the law. He perfectly and honestly fulfills the depths of the law. He puts down his rightful status as equal to God. He gives his life for those who offer nothing, 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 nothing but their sin. And at the end of the story of redemption, Jesus does not walk away, head bowed down, but no, Jesus returns. And we walk away with him as his siblings, now wearing robes of righteousness. Jesus is the greater rich ruler, great and rich in love, great and rich in grace, great and rich in generosity. Remember how we started? I told you those cool stories about ways that people have lied. I got one more for you. And this one, and some of you will remember this uh, it, throughout your history books, this one takes place in 1918, the Bolshevik revolutionaries. 
They executed Russian Tsar Nicholas II, the Empress, his wife, and their five children. But did Anastasia, the youngest daughter, escape? Did she get away? Several impersonators exploited this hope. Most famously, Anna Anderson and Anastasia look alike. She filed an unsuccessful suit in 1938 to try to prove her identity and claim the huge inheritance. Anderson, who had supporters as well as detractors, died in 1984. Ha, and that's when the truth came out. At, a, at, at her DNA testing after she had passed away, we found that she was unrelated to the Russian family. And instead, she was a Polish factory worker named Franziska Shevankowska. What do you think about that? Interesting, huh? After her death, her DNA told the story, didn't it? Her DNA told the truth. And in the end, like Francisca, our spiritual DNA, something we can't shake and something we can't fake, it will tell the truth on us. One day, our lives will not be able to hide us. Oh, religious, rich, young rulers. Our self-deception doesn't save. In the end, our lies and self-deception will catch up with us. Sure thing, it's going down. And when we stand before he who is the truth, let us all declare together the whole story, the whole truth. And this is it, that we were dead in sin and trespasses, all kinds of sins. But given life at the hands of the greater ruler, who rules now and will rule forevermore. Thank you. Thank you.